Hello, and welcome to An Open Conversation, the podcast series which explores obesity through the lens of policy, prevention, and care. I'm your host, Joe Naglowski, and I'm president and CEO of the Obesity Action Coalition. Today, I'll be having an open conversation with Andreas Hurt, patient advocate and vice chairman of ACSDEV, and a board member of the German Obesity Alliance, and Dr. Stephanie DiGiorgio, general practitioner with a special interest in obesity. In today's episode, we'll be discussing the recognition of obesity as a chronic disease and the potential implications of this on government strategies for obesity treatment and management. So let's talk about obesity. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Hi, Jill. So Stephanie, why don't you introduce yourself to the group? So I am Stephanie Giorgio. I'm a GP. I work down in East Kent and I have a special interest in obesity, which started probably about seven years ago. And I've also had bariatric surgery myself, so I've lived through it. So I try and write guidelines for GPs to understand obesity and help treat their patients living with obesity and talk about it as much as people will listen to see if we can change some minds. Thanks, Stephanie. And Andreas, why don't you introduce yourself? My name is Andreas Hert. I'm based in a small city next to Frankfurt in Germany. And as Joe said, I'm running as well a patient organization, which is uh, the oldest patient organization in Germany that cares about people living with obesity. And the new baby that I'm caring for is the German Obesity Alliance, which is a multi-stakeholder organization where we try to get um, health insurance, politicians, uh, doctors, as well as patients on one table and try ultimately to speak with one voice in order to align. Thanks, Andreas. And for the audience as well, I'll introduce myself. I am uh, Joe Naglowski. I run the Obesity Action Coalition here in the U.S., which is the patient advocacy organization, similar to Andreas's organization in Germany. We've been around now for almost 17 years, giving those people living with obesity a voice in the conversations about it. In addition to my work at OEC, I also co-chair our voluntary group called the Obesity Care Advocacy Network that looks to include a wide variety of organizations to try to improve access to obesity care, eliminate stigma, and, and tackling obesity as a society here in the U.S. And so I'm honored to be part of that group as well, which is also a member of the Open Network that is hosting this podcast today. So really, our talk today is about obesity as a disease. And I wanted to start us off with a, a few uh, definitions that are out there. One is from the World Health Organization that says pre-obesity or overweight and obesity are medical conditions marked by an abnormal and or excessive accumulation of body fat that presents a risk to health. And that was WHO. The European Commission says obesity is a chronic relapsing disease, which in turn acts as a gateway to a range of other non-communicable diseases, such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and cancer. So those are formal definitions, but I was wondering, Stephanie, as a GP who works with people living with obesity, what's your definition of obesity and how do you talk to people living with it about? I talk to people by trying to start off by explaining that obesity is a lifelong condition and that there isn't an easy fix, because that's the first thing that people understandably want and have been told that they can have because everyone sells the best fix for losing weight. So I tell people that it's a lifelong condition. I tell them that for the majority of people, it will get better because you may well lose some weight, but then there is a high chance that weight might come back again. I also tell them that it is 
an accumulation of body fat. Yes, it is. And we know that accumulating body fat, particularly in certain areas of your body, can be dangerous for you and that we need to discuss what that can do and how we can try and improve things. But whenever I talk about it, I don't talk about it in a defeatist way. I talk about it because although, yes, the science is difficult and to some people, I think they get a little bit disheartened when they first hear that it's not a quick, easy thing to manage. But actually, as everybody on this podcast will know, people living with obesity know that living with obesity is not something you fix easily. And so to say that out loud to somebody actually is often a light bulb moment for them. And if you say nothing else, you let them feel like they're not failing. So that is a key message when I start talking about obesity with people. Thanks for sharing that. I, I agree 100%. So Andreas, along those same lines, what, what do you hear from your members of your organization around definition of obesity and, and what it means to them? To be honest, most members of our organization do not really care too much about the definition. They care about that they get help. And it takes some effort from our side to explain to them that to having a proper definition and all which goes around that is necessary in order to provide ultimately help to them. Because in, in the heads of many people, there's just a simple story. They oversimplify obesity by thinking it's just people weigh too much. It's just that they ate too much. And if they change their behavior, then everything is fine. And this is not only in the heads of uh, doctors and decision makers like politicians, it's as well in the heads of the patients. Many of those believe it themselves because that's what they've been told for many, many years. And I think that's something we need to change, not the definition, but uh, the belief. I agree completely. I think we see that also here in the U.S. where obesity being called a disease and people saying that they believe obesity is a disease is a pretty common view here in the U.S. now. But people actually don't understand what that really means because they still have this tendency to blame themselves. And, and many of us who struggle have this internalized bias, right, that we've accepted what society has told us about this and we don't recognize this condition. Before we jump onto the policy implications of this, I'll throw an, another question in as we were talking here. I think the one thing that interests me about these definitions is that neither of them include BMI. And I actually think that's a good thing. I'm curious, uh, Stephanie, your thoughts on that. Oh, it's a very good thing. I, I said this the other day and people's eyes rolled up into their foreheads with shock, but I said, actually, BMI is basically racist and sexist. BMI doesn't care if you have boobs. BMI doesn't care where you keep your fat. BMI is a creation for insurance companies. And although I completely understand why it is still used, because we don't really have anything better yet. And once it's over a certain number, probably sort of 40-ish, we can presume most people will have health problems with a BMI of that, but not everybody. But BMI as a measure is a very flawed measure. And if obesity had been taken seriously by the medical profession a long time ago, we would not still be using BMI. We would be using something else. And people who work in the field of obesity medicine are trying really hard to find something better. But BMI, we seem to be stuck with, and it's a real shame, actually. My personal opinion is that BMI might be useful if we were looking at thousands of people at a time, not particularly useful on an individual basis. And our challenge becomes this assumption that everyone with a larger body has a health problem. But actually, if we read those two definitions carefully, we're, we're basically saying you don't have obesity 
unless you have extra body fat that is harming your health. And I think we have to be careful. So as we talk about calling obesity a disease, I don't think we're actually talking about all people with larger bodies having obesity. We're actually talking about people when they have a larger body and it is affecting their health. That's our, I think, all three of us on this podcast definition of what obesity is. And I think that matches what we're seeing from the regulatory bodies at the both the state, federal, and even international level. So, Andreas, any thoughts on your end on the BMI conversation? I couldn't agree more. It's good as a population measure, uh, maybe to compare countries with each other and see how it's going, how it develops over time on a large scale. Um, but it's, it's just not good enough for a diagnosis of an individual. And the, the bad thing is it's so easy to measure. That sounds weird, but as it is so easy, that's what most people do first. And as well, the guidelines. Our guidelines, we are going to develop a new version just now. It's difficult to get rid of the BMI. We discussed it back and forth with the health practitioners, and everybody agrees it would be good to do it differently. But it's so difficult to actually do it because all the studies that are out there, etc., they refer to BMI. So all the knowledge is tied to BMI. It is. And, and one of the things that I've been very keen to explain to my colleagues is that there are now quite good BMI charts that look at racial variation. And I think that we absolutely have to use those because otherwise we are doing our patients a massive disservice. One of the problems we have is we don't have that in kids yet, but I think we have to, with some urgency, actually have even more discussion about BMI and how it discriminates because it's not okay to use something that is so discriminatory as a measure that is medically accepted. We wouldn't do that for most other things. And I think we have to be very careful to continue to use something that is not correct for quite a few patients. And that some, in some cases, depending on your race or ethnicity, it underestimates obesity. In other cases, it overestimates. And I think we need to understand as a problem on both sides, it's not just one side, it's just not overestimating obesity. And in many cases, it's underestimating obesity as well. And that's why we say when we do large populations, right, we say maybe that balances out. But on an individual basis, it definitely doesn't balance out. My other peeve about BMI, and then we'll shift back to our conversation about obesity as a disease, is that it's too often used by people to self-diagnose themselves with obesity. So if obesity is a disease, which I think all three of us argue here, and I think our regulatory bodies around the world are arguing now, you don't diagnose yourself with any other disease, right? Your healthcare provider does that. Your Whoever in the healthcare environment does that. And so I think that is another probably unintended consequence of BMI is that it's it's caused people to self-diagnose themselves with obesity. And, and probably that's not how we should be practicing healthcare in the world. So let's talk about obesity as a disease when it comes to kind of country or health systems and government. So Stephanie, in the UK, how is obesity recognized by your government as a disease? Is it? And what, what does that mean in terms of care? So, No, it's not yet. And Every recent policy that has come from the government would suggest that they still don't have an understanding that obesity is a disease. It's very much put less on your plate and get on your bike. Quite literally, it was all about bikes. Yawn. And the Royal College of Physicians, however, has recognised that it should be a disease. The Royal College of GPs, which I wrote their e-learning for, hasn't officially said it, but they've let me write a whole e-learning module where I say it. So they must um, think that it's probably about right, but we need a bigger voice on it now. And we need medical professionals to join together to say it. But it is a new discussion here in the UK. It is not a discussion that has 
really taken off until I'd say 18 months ago. I mean, really recently. And so I'm hoping that now it will start to be taken more seriously. It will start to unite professionals. And if we can unite medical professionals, we will then have a much more powerful voice to our our politicians and policy makers, because today's not the day to discuss UK politics, but, but they don't understand it. And we need to help them understand it. And we do that better if we speak as one voice. Andreas, how about in Germany? How is the healthcare system and or the government recognizing obesity as a disease? Well, actually, since one and a half years, obesity is recognized by the government or by the parliament. But the thing is, it's just not their job. It's not the job of the German parliament to decide on what is a disease or what not. So if you look, for instance, uh, at COVID, there was no discussion about if COVID is a disease or not. There was discussion about what to do against it. And that's actually, from my point of view, the most important thing. So recognition as a disease is a first step, and it's good because it serves many, many things like you don't believe it's your fault. If it's a disease, it opens gates for health insurance to ultimately pay for treatments and stuff like that. So it's like a gate opener. But nevertheless, there are a lot of other things that needs to follow after the recognition has been made. And I agree with that, Andreas. We've seen, like many parts of the world, we see intermittent recognition of obesity as a disease here in the U.S. I mean, we have groups like our Center for Disease Control that use obesity as a disease language and every press release they do about obesity now. Our own internal revenue service who collects our taxes calls obesity a disease because you can actually uh, lower your taxes getting services for obesity. We have other groups that just unusual language. For a long time, our Department of Health and Human Services, which oversees our Medicare and Medicaid system, basically our federally supported health insurance program for those in need or those that are elderly, they for a long time they said obesity is not a disease and then a decade or more ago they actually said and this is actually still their official policy is that obesity is not not a disease there's actually two knots in a row because they won't actually say the word obesity is a disease and it, it just speaks to kind of the challenge of this and maybe bias and stigma rising up, but also the kind of this general misunderstanding of what obesity is and probably formed by decades of policy that really thought obesity was just a lifestyle problem and not a problem of biology. And so it's, it's actually interesting. I look back and when OEC was started 17 years ago, actually the first thing we referred to obesity as a disease. And I didn't think that was bold when I did it back then. That's just really what we thought as the, the patient audience affected. But it's only been in the last couple of years that we've seen this disease argument take off. And so let's talk about that argument. So what arguments have you seen that have worked and not worked to convince people that obesity is a disease? So Stephanie, I'll start with you. Obesity being a disease makes complete sense to anyone who lives with obesity because you can have someone who can tackle everything else in their life and still can't lose weight or keep weight off actually is generally the issue and so they know it. When we talk about it being a disease with other medical professionals it challenges such an inbuilt belief system about weight that Initially, the pushback is it's an excuse. That's making excuses for people to be lazy. By saying it's a disease, you are medicalizing something that isn't a medical problem. And my argument always is that these are people who have a different physiology 
So once they have developed obesity significantly, for a whole variety of reasons, genetic, biological, environmental, psychological, all the things we know, when I start talking about the physiology and we talk about hormones and we talk about regulatory systems within our body, then they start to go, oh, okay. And one of the things that I think is very important is that medical professionals, certainly here in the UK, have not been taught about obesity. I never had a single lesson about obesity in medical school. And I'm quite old. I qualified 22 years ago. And it's probably been 20 years since obesity research really started taking off in a big way. So there is a whole cohort of medical professionals who literally never learned about obesity. But we also didn't learn about a lot of other things that happen now. And we've been made to learn about those things. But we have not been made to learn about obesity for all the inbuilt systemic stigma that we have. And so when people say it's not a disease, they generally are saying that through a position of ignorance. And I don't mean ignorance as in willful ignorance, it's ignorance as in they literally don't know the science. So I always push back on that argument with once you know the science of obesity, let's have another discussion and then we can talk about it more. And generally, once they've read it, they go, oh yeah, (laughs) perhaps it is. So education is my biggest argument. Once you do that, you persuade most of the medical professionals. And if you can persuade them, then they can persuade other people. Thanks, Stephanie. Andreas, from your perspective, I know you just went through this process in Germany with you and your colleagues not long ago. What arguments worked the best? Which ones were the most challenging? It might be a little bit different if we talk with politicians or with patients. So if I may start with patients first, there I slightly disagree that for everybody, it makes sense that it's a disease. I think for many of those, it's a process where they have to go through until they end up believing it's a disease. And from my perspective, it's basically that they get told they have control. They have an illusion of uh, control of their weight because it's possible not to eat a piece of cake. It's possible to lose a few kilos within a few weeks. And because that is possible, they have the illusion that they are in full control of their body weight, which is just not the case. So that's one part of the story. And actually, things like that, we as well heard when we talked with politicians. We sat in Berlin at the parliament on a table with a few politicians. We had a doctor with us. The doctor explained all the science and stuff. We as patients explained what it means to live with obesity. And after 45 minutes of intensive talking, one of the politicians said, I know why I'm bigger than you. I just eat too much. I like to eat. And then another one joined in and he said, when you work in the parliament, you have all that bad food presented everywhere and you take pretzels, etc. And you should avoid to serve pretzels and then everything would be fine. So that was a little bit frustrating for us. But ultimately, I still believe it's the right thing to do to talk about the science and to have scientists talking about science and to have patients talking about their experience. So everybody talking about the things he knows best. And at the end, I believe that's the way to convince other persons. What's still difficult is to change beliefs. So all that talking on uh, about science, it works on an intellectual level. So it goes into your brains, but not into the feelings and the internal beliefs. 
So in order to address that, I would assume uh, stories from patients work better. Yeah, thanks, Andreas. I think those examples you gave, and even whether that was the policymakers or our individual patients, so many of us deal with this internalized stigma we've applied to ourselves because of the messages we've heard our entire lives, that it's not oftentimes instant. I, I will tell you that I've had the privilege to talk to thousands of people who live with obesity in, in my job here at OAC. And I mean, at times it is remarkable when you watch somebody who believes it's all been their own fault their entire life, and then they go through the process and then understand that this is a disease process. And in some ways, they forgive themselves. And in no other condition do we tell people by calling something a disease that you're going to do less, that you're going to give up, right? So if I saw Stephanie today and she was my GP and she told me I have cancer, she tells me I have cancer because we're going to ramp it up. We're going to go full out. We're going to find a solution, right? Some providers would argue, well, if we call that a disease, people are going to give up. They're not going to try anymore. That's actually not what happens when we diagnose disease. The opposite happens. And so I think it's important um, that we recognize that. But I think it's also important that we recognize that these stigmas exist. And I've seen it too, Andres, just like you've described. We'll go to a meeting and I think we've made progress. And I think for actually a, a day or a two or a week, we've made progress with some of those policymakers. But then they're ultimately bombarded by the same public messages that go back to blaming people and applying this as all in self-control. And so it's going to take more time and more effort for us to continue those conversations and to move them forward. I think all of us agree it's worth doing, but I think it's going to take a, a more concerted effort and maybe a more aggressive effort at times to convince people that they need to think about this differently. So if we really did recognize obesity as a chronic disease and it was fully recognized uh, in your country, what do you think would be different? Maybe I'll start with you, Andreas, this time. It should be the same like for every other disease. And I believe the only thing why this is not the case is that we seem to be somehow the new kid on the block, while actually we aren't. Obesity is there for a long time. And only because we now work on that disease recognition does not mean that we're new in calling for additional money or whatsoever. And we, people living with obesity deserve the same treatment than any other. Stephanie, what would you think would happen in the UK if, if obesity was truly recognized as a disease? What would be different? I would hope we would, exactly like Andrea said, we would be providing treatments to people that weren't rationed because we have the NHS. And so whether your treatment can happen is decided by people commissioning services for that treatment. And services commissioned for obesity at the moment are uh, not evidence-based in the majority of cases, and the evidence-based ones are rationed very significantly. So I would hope we would get recognition and treatment would be funded. And then I also hope that would start a discussion about stigma and understanding about obesity. I don't believe that it would be quick. I think a lot of the discussions around COVID and people with obesity being more at risk from COVID, the pushback on that wasn't very nice in some circumstances. And so we know that although recognising it as a disease would be a good thing, I would also have to be prepared for the backlash that would happen initially. Because as Andreas said, that feeling, that belief that it is all under the person's control and that they just need to try harder is so ingrained within everybody, including people who've lived with obesity and will still occasionally find themselves thinking that about themselves. 
there will be a pushback, but I think that it would be the beginning of the pushback improving. And I link this to treatment of depression and and things that we're probably about 25 years behind that. But now no one tells people with depression to just cheer up anymore. And what I'm hoping is that we will get to the point where we don't tell people to just eat kale and quinoa and go for a run and it'll all be fine. So I, I, I think it will change the narrative, but it will be rocky times while it happens. Yeah, thanks, Stephanie. And I think I, I agree completely on the treatment side that both of you mentioned. I actually think it would also have a dramatic effect on the prevention side as well, because with every chronic disease, we have both prevention and treatment. But if the prevention measures are based on this assumption of personal fault or personal blame instead of this higher systems level kind of approach to addressing this. And I think a chronic disease model encourages that systems level approach, right? So we can look at issues, the broader issues of food availability and poverty and safety and things of that nature that that really add a level of complication to this. And part of the reason why I consider obesity disease is not only because I've struggled with it personally, but because I've seen the complexity of it, that we've actually seen how challenging it is. And then someday I I think many of you have said this before, that I don't believe obesity is a single thing. I think we have obesities and some days we'll have types of obesity and that'll help us do a better job diagnosing and treating obesity. Now, I want to come back, Stephanie, you, you talked about stigma and the rocky road. And one of the pushbacks about labeling obesity as a disease is it's going to add to stigma. We hear some people make that argument. Now, I believe very firmly the opposite, that it's going to reduce stigma. But how do you respond to people when they say that calling obesity a disease is going to add to stigma? I think you're right. I think that when we call it a disease, there will be people who live in larger bodies who do not feel like they have it because they feel healthy. And we've talked, I think you're right, with the subtypes and where the fat is placed in your body makes a big difference. And so we have to acknowledge that. But you can hold those two thoughts simultaneously. You can hold the thoughts that obesity is a disease that needs proper treatment, proper funding, proper care, proper prevention, at the same time as knowing that somebody can live happily in a bigger body and doesn't necessarily get poorly from it. And I think that those two things are not mutually exclusive. So I don't think it will increase the stigma. I think it will open a discussion about it. So you have people who have, you know, mild asthma and you have people whose asthma puts them in hospital all the time. Those two people have the same disease. Although interestingly, we actually think there's subtypes of that now as well. But you know, we don't say that everybody with a condition has the same degree of that condition. And so I think it will open a narrative that will allow us to have a much more nuanced and sensible and scientific and evidence-based discussion about obesity the causes and the treatments than we have at the moment. So Andreas, I know you're particularly passionate about this uh, topic of stigma as well. What would you add to this conversation? Just to view it on a slightly different angle, if a doctor diagnoses a patient with a disease, it's actually in the first place, it's putting a label on them. So like you have that. And that label, it doesn't need to change anything. It depends on the patient. So I've seen for some of the patients, it was a relief to get the diagnosis because they said, now, okay, there is a disease, so hopefully there is a treatment. There is a disease, so there is an explanation why I'm like I am. And it's not just my fault. So it, it's a relief for some of them. For others, it becomes stigmatizing. But from my point of view, not because the name of the disease 
as stigmatizing, but because of all the stories that are linked to that. And that for sure is something that needs to change over a long period of time. We talked about different wrong narratives. And as long as this narrative is there, there will surely come some sort of stigma with it. But hopefully that will change over time. I think actually Andreas has brought up a really interesting point, which those of us who talk about obesity openly and talk about the policies and the diseases, especially perhaps those of us who lived with obesity, will have had our own moment when we found out it wasn't our fault. And I think, Andreas, that's a really interesting point that probably we, as those people having those discussions, will bring our own experiences of that into discussing whether something is more stigmatizing or less stigmatizing. And that's really made me think about it, actually, because if for you it was a relief, then we might be the kind of person who says, yes, there's no problem. But actually, we need to think a little bit more widely and remember that everyone has different reactions. So that was my brain just had a moment, Andreas. Thank you very much. I think this idea of obesity and stigma, all kinds of different things, we could take this conversation down. But one of our challenges, we mentioned it earlier with BMI, is that people self-diagnose themselves with obesity. Do we think that this designation of obesity as a disease will have healthcare providers actually engage in the appropriate diagnosis of obesity? Or is that not going to happen until the payment systems catch up and pay for that diagnosis as well? Because I think that's the challenge in many places. So Stephanie, you're a healthcare provider. So let's let's start with you on that. What do you think system-wide, what impact it would have? At the moment, within the UK healthcare system, obviously, there's no monetary value to diagnosing it. And we don't, interestingly, as a primary care physician, we have absolutely pretty much nothing that we can the patient, which is really annoying. But it will, of course, increase expenditure initially because we will be hopefully offering patients and people living with obesity treatment. I think what needs to happen is that the healthcare system needs to start looking at itself on a sort of a 10-year cycle budgetary-wise rather than a one-year cycle because actually we know that if you can prevent some of the diseases that occur as a result of someone having obesity that's causing them health problems, you will save money in the long term. So I think if we're going to consider it as a disease, which I think we should, we then need to understand there might be a sort of an expansion of spending, but then there will be a reduction in spending in the long term. So it's going to, again, require some significant negotiations. <laughs> So one of the things that happens here pretty frequently in the U.S. is with our electronic medical health records is that your height and your weight is inputted because your height and your weight is taken at every visit. And then it's just automatically assigned to you that you have obesity based on your BMI without an actual medical diagnosis. And many times the first time a patient actually finds out they have obesity is not because their doctor ever said anything other than maybe wagging their finger at them saying you need to lose a few pounds. They actually see it in the after visit report where they're actually diagnosed with obesity. Andreas, any examples from the German environment in terms of diagnosis? I actually do not believe that a diagnosis is the main problem. The major problem from my point of view is that there is a lack of therapy available. And if you have a diagnosis and have no place to send the people, what should you do? If you look in Germany, we have about 100 hospitals specializing in bariatric surgery. And they do a little bit besides that. The thing is, hospitals can do whatever they want to do as long as it is in accordance with the guidelines and the medical knowledge. They can do what they want. 
and they get reimbursement. Health insurers can challenge that afterwards, but basically they can do what they want. For the doctors outside of hospitals, it's quite the opposite. They can only do what's on the list of things to be done. And obesity is not on that list. And obesity treatments is not on that list. So basically, we're in the absurd situation that a doctor, after he diagnoses, he can either say, go to a bariatric surgery center or look for something where you pay for yourself. So get a medication and pay for yourself. Or go to a program for nutrition advice, maybe with shakes and whatever is available, but you have to pay. And that's the biggest problem. People are not prepared to pay, and I can understand that. Some are, but the majority is not prepared to pay large amounts of money. They are just not used to do it because in, in Germany, generally everything is for free with a few exemptions like glasses or stuff like that, yeah, or a special dental treatment. Everything else is free. So why should they pay for something? And as there is no money, there are no solutions. I think one of the key points you raised there, Andreas, which is resonating with me, is that sometimes we don't diagnose things because we don't have treatments to offer people to be able to help them. And and I, I think that's a valid point. But we have other health conditions that um, we don't have treatments for. We still diagnose people with them. Maybe that's the role of stigma playing in again around this issue of obesity that makes it it particularly challenging. I'm going to ask you a couple of bold questions now. We'll shift gears. I'll ask you some bold questions. So if you had a what we would call a magic wand here in the U.S., you had a way to change the system to better care for people with obesity, what would be the top thing you would do in your country today? Stephanie, I'll start with you. So. I would set up community obesity treatment centers that were staffed by GPs, people like me who have an interest, but also are trained in a very holistic way to look after the whole patient and can treat other things alongside it. We would have access to bariatric specialists to discuss things with, both surgeons and medics. And we would have a really nice holistic approach and there would be one of those for every however many groups of GP practices to refer to. And we would have access, we would have prescribing abilities for the drugs that at the moment people have to get from super specialist centres. And it would be considered a normal, nice, sensible part of treatment. And that would be my magic one. How about you, Andreas? I would like to see all therapies based on evidence that all of them are available to the people, that they can pick between those, that there is no imbalance, like I mentioned before, that it's absurdly easier to get access to surgery than to other treatments with, uh, which are less invasive. And a benefit of that, that all medical evidence-based treatments are available would be that dubious offers that are out there which are not trustworthy, that those would go away. There are many people out there making use of that fact that you can't get entry-level treatment. So they offer, in the easiest way, dietary advice. Bad examples are that they give you some nutrition stuff that nobody cares about what's in. And people, patients being desperate, take it nevertheless. And get into danger because they take something which is not under control of any authority. So to get rid of the gray market 
and to have all sound uh, therapies available. That would be my wish. And I think my wish is a combination of your two, right? Because I, th I think they're interrelated, right? I mean, for me, our challenge is that the market is splintered because of the way our payment system is, because we haven't recognized that all of these services should be reimbursed. My challenge in the U.S. is that if I see a dietitian, I get dietary counseling. If I see a physician, I might get medications or a very low-calorie diet. If I see a surgeon, I get surgery. But no one actually tells me that because the systems aren't interrelated and we don't have these comprehensive programs that you know Stephanie highlighted that, is that actually the best option for me? And you have folks like me who've probably been on 40 different therapies for my obesity over my 50 years now of life kind of thing. And we're constantly just going from whichever one's available to us instead of actually going through a process where we get informed consent, meaning that someone talks to me about all my options that are available, right? That we actually go through all the pros and cons and we actually decide based on what's the right therapy instead of what's paid for by my insurance or in most cases, because most of it isn't, what, what I can afford to pay out of pocket to cover those kind of things. And so part of this is, I think, all combined. So another bold question for you just to think about and opine on. So if you were in the Capitol today and you got in the elevator with a member of parliament or whoever it may be, whoever leadership would be, and you had a couple of minutes to sell them on obesity as a disease, tell me how you'd pitch it to them. Andreas, I'll let you go first this time. That's a tough one because I always stumble across the things I heard before. And that's what's in my mind, all the bad narratives that keeps me from giving a good pitch. But if I have to do it, I would play the card of equal access. So non-discriminatory uh, access to all treatments. There's no reason in the world why somebody suffering from obesity should not get a treatment while for each and every other disease you get treatment. That's just a, a thing of fairness. And it's unfair that people are treated that way. Stephanie, how about you? What would you say to that uh, member of parliament? I would say that if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, and it's not working, then you are throwing good money after bad. And that is what governments have done in the UK now for a long time about obesity. And politicians like money discussions. So I would talk about the fact that they are currently wasting money on non-evidence-based treatments and that they would save a lot of money if they provided decent evidence-based treatments in the five-year to ten-year cycle, not instantly. I would base it around money because sadly they don't listen to much else and from other work that I've done it was money that changed their mind in the long run. But then I'd have Andreas behind me to tell them the other bit as well. <laughs> And, and I will say, I asked this question because I had this experience. I uh, was at the U.S. Capitol. Uh, a senator got in the elevator with me. And usually they have their own elevator, so you don't get to do that. But I was in the wrong elevator or he got in the wrong elevator. And I froze. I couldn't actually <laughs> do my pitch. It's called the elevator pitch for a reason because you're in the elevator and you can have it. But with that being said, I think from my perspective, what I do now is actually go to the human experience. I actually share my own experience with obesity and talk about how complicated it has been. And honestly, it's not just about knowledge and willpower, right? Because if we were going to say this was about knowledge and willpower, there's nothing else in my life that I haven't been successful at. And arguably, there are plenty of scientists who know more about obesity in this world than I do. But there are not that many more people that know more about obesity than I do in this world from th doing this for 17 years. <laughs> 
yet I still struggle and really getting people to understand. And then I try to pull out of them, talk to me about somebody else that you know who lives with this experience. Recalls all of us have a friend or a family member or a colleague that you've seen struggle. And, and oftentimes I'll get the, yeah, but, you know, somebody, you know, I was watching this celebrity who lost 100 pounds or the biggest loser and somebody lost 100 pounds. And, and then we go back and then we talk about the data. We talk about what the evidence may be and, and we move that forward. And I think it is baby steps with that, trying to get them to recognize that obesity is complicated, probably is the thing that I'm trying to do to start. And, and that's all they really have time for in an elevator pitch to get them to really understand that this isn't just about calories in, calories out, because if it was, we would have solved the problem right now. And by the way, if it was about calories in, calories out, someone like me who's been on a 500 calorie reduced diet for the last 30 years would weigh zero, <laughs> right? Because if 3,500 calories is a pound, I, I should weigh zero by now. And obviously that doesn't happen. So it's obviously more complicated than that. Andreas, you want to add to that? Yeah. I believe that obesity is complex and that the whole story and the science behind it is complex is part of the problem. Because the story out there is a really easy one. It's too much calories in, yeah, too less out. So you just need to eat less and move more. So that's the easy solution to an easy story. And I believe it's really hard to replace the easy story with a difficult one, especially if you have just five minutes in an elevator. Yeah, the oversimplification of obesity is something that has had a lot of consequences, right? In making obesity bad, we've made the people with obesity bad. We've actually mismessaged to them about this. We've let the quasi-science or science that's not ready yet for the public uh, domain become what is accepted. I'm not saying that someday down the road, some of these things that they're working on now aren't going to become evidence-based, but they're not now. We see a lot of those challenges. And I think as you raised, Andreas, in your in your earlier comment about the magic wand, I think the one thing we don't talk enough about it is the, the pseudoscience and or the snake oil that appears in this space that seems to uh, keep people from evidence-based care, and it, it has a real influence. So I know we are running out of time. So I wanted to just give both of you, and I'll start with you, Stephanie, just a closing comment, one final thought as obesity is a disease as we uh, educate our podcast listeners today. So please, the floor is yours. Obesity has to be a disease. It is a complex, relapsing, remitting disease. And actually, I'm going to end on a positive note, which is that I think over the last one year to 18 months, a vast number of clinicians have finally got it. Not thanks to me. There's many other people doing the same thing. But they have finally got it. And so I'm going to finish on a positive that I think things are changing fast. And I think that wonderful people like you, Joe, and Andreas, and many other people working in this space have pushed hard. And I think we need to continue to push hard. But I think we're reaching a tipping point. Thanks for that, Stephanie. Andreas, your final points? Based on the fact that obesity is a disease, I think just because it's a disease, it's not only about doctors and only about science. It's first and foremost about people that live with that disease. So we shouldn't forget that. And if we want to change something, we need to work together. So the patients and the doctors, the scientists, to get that message across. I couldn't agree more, Andreas. Humanizing this as part of our challenge, too often people who have obesity are just statistics, right? We're just that 35% or 40% in our country that have obesity. We're not actually thought of as a, a real person and it's gonna take a concerted effort to do this. No one is suggesting it's easy. We've all talked about how complex it is. 
So with that, we've come to the end of this episode. Thank you to our guests, uh, Andreas Hurt and Dr. Stephanie DiGiorgio for your valuable insights. And thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to continue the conversation on Twitter, please use the hashtag OpenConversation. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can always find out more about Open at www.obesityopen.org. Don't forget to also subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Open Obesity and on LinkedIn by searching the Obesity Policy Engagement Network so you can hear more about our new episodes. I've been your host, Joe Naglowski, and thank you for joining an open conversation. Mm-hmm.